Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Harbin Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. And... You know, if you want to save the world, or at least, you know, habitat for mammals planet-wide, if you want to save some money, would you like to live a few years longer? Well, there's ways you can do that. There's a way that you can do that, a very simple, straightforward way to do that, and that is to cut all animal products out of your diet, or to the extent that you're comfortable with. Reduce the number of animal products that you're eating. This is literally the single most powerful thing you can do to fight climate change. Our individual consumption of fossil fuels... You know, unless you're, uh, you know, uh, an over-the-road truck driver or something, our individual consumption of fossil fuels, our recycling, all these things, you know, that we all do. Thanks, no thanks for the straw in the restaurant. These are all nice starts. But the biggest impact that you have as an American on the environment, on the atmosphere, on the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is from eating meat. Meat is insanely carbon intensive. First of all, meat has to be fed plants. And so first the plants have to be grown. That's a carbon intensive process. And then you've got these factory farms. And this is without even considering, you know, the brutality of it all, just the carbon footprint of it is absolutely massive. And so if you take meat out of your diet, you take dairy products out of your diet, and by meat I'm talking about poultry as well, and fish for that matter. I was a vegetarian from 1967 until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Louise and I started eating salmon once in a while when we moved to Portland, like maybe once a month, eight or 10 times a year. We quit doing that a few months ago and just went back to being totally vegans and got all the animal products out of our house, period. In fact, I just got a, a new fabric belt, although my shoes are still leather, but eventually, you know, step by step, right? And I'm feeling better. I know Louise is feeling better. And it's also one of the single best ways to prevent a heart attack or a stroke. I mean, you know, look at what Bill Clinton did after he had a heart attack. He became a vegan. Cory Booker is a vegan. I mean, there's vegan bodybuilders. Eating meat and dairy not only pollutes the atmosphere and the environment, it pollutes your body and it pollutes your mind, actually. Cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of age-related dementia. As people get older, their arteries and veins, particularly in their brains, start hardening up or clogging up and reducing blood flow to the brain, boom, you've got age-related dementia, and there's a relationship between all of that and meat and dairy products. And so in every regard, cutting meat out of your diet is like one of the absolute best things you can do. And what got me thinking about this is an article in The Guardian by Siren Kale titled, The 14 Things You Need to Know Before Going Vegan. Should you jump right in? How do you deal with negative responses from meat-loving family and friends? How do you make sure you're getting enough protein? Well, just run through these real quick. Should you jump right in? You know, it's up to you. Cutting back, if you're eating meat seven days a week, cut back to five, then cut back to three, then cut, you know, or my own personal experience is 
I haven't literally have not eaten meat since 1967, so I can't speak to that. But taking dairy products out of my diet, at first, I replaced them with soy cheeses and yogurts that are made out of plant matter, mayonnaise, stuff like that. And you, you don't miss it. I mean, there's some actually some spectacular cheese out there that is not made from milk. So how do you deal with negative responses from meat-loving family and friends? Just don't be, you know, don't be obnoxious about it, right? How do I make sure I'm getting enough protein? There is no such thing as protein deficiency for all practical purposes. I work in Uganda, among other places around the world. I've seen malnutrition on three continents. In Uganda, it was particularly bad because we were in the middle of a famine. That's the only time you see protein deficiency. You know, kwashiorkor, the big belly disease of little kids, that's actually protein deficiency, but it's always associated with calorie deficiency. In other words, they're starving to death. If you're not starving to death, you're not going to have a protein deficiency, period, full stop. What about vitamins and minerals? Well, the only thing that seems to be associated with the animals is B12. Fermented foods are rich in B12. Yeast has B12. And at worst case scenario, you can take a B12 pill if you want. People say veganism is expensive. No, actually, it's cheaper to eat plants than it is to eat meat. I mean, it's just that simple. What if you're going to go to have dinner at somebody else's house? Hey, offer to bring a, a plate. You know, and, and by the way, you know, people say, you know, well, let's go out to dinner. I, I was in New York last week and, you know, uh, 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 with, my, with my business manager, he's like, let's go out to dinner. He says, oh, we got to find a restaurant that can accommodate you. And I'm like, I can find a salad anywhere. I can find vegan food anywhere. You know, most restaurants I can get, you know, uh, steamed food or, you know, steamed asparagus or whatever. What if I really crave some meat? Hey, this isn't a religion you're being asked to join. I realize some people treat it like it is, but, uh, you know, step by step. It's not, the, you know, you don't have to do a 12-step program to, to get rid of meat. You just start, start eating less of it. Um, is it difficult to maintain a healthy weight on a vegan diet? Well, what happens, you know, one of the reasons why there's so many vegans in Hollywood is it's a great way to lose weight, but your body does stabilize. Your body just establishes a new normal, you know, the thermostat of your body. It is difficult to find vegan options where I live. What do I do? Well, you know, actually, you can, A, cook a lot at home, but B, it's increasingly not that hard to find vegan places to eat out. What if your partner doesn't want to go vegan? Will it affect your relationship? Again, don't make it a religion. Don't, don't make it political. Just, you know, I, I'd rather eat this way. What about kids? Is veganism safe for them? I can tell you, you know, Louise and I raised three children completely vegetarian. Uh, one of them has been a vegan for, I think, 20 years now. He's in his 40s um, and he was raised a vegetarian. It's fine for kids. The Vegan Society website has a lot of information on this. What if I slip up and break my vegan streak? Again, like I said, you know, people are not perfect. Dave in Port Charlotte, Florida. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, yes, sir. I was just tuned into your show late this afternoon and uh, heard you talking about veganism. And since we have went that way, all dairy and meat, it's just been great. I'm cutting all my diabetes medicine in half. I feel better. I've lost 25 pounds and wow. uh, have no issues. I'm just real happy and I'm just... My daughter made me uh, or got me to read this book. I wouldn't say made me, but she recommended this book, and it's a great read. If I may say so, I think it's called Forks Over Knives. Yeah, Forks Over Knives, as in eat your vegetables instead of cutting your meat. And there's also a, a video of that. I mean, that's out of the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, isn't that the documentary kind of about the Cleveland Clinic and all the research that they did, and that's the diet that Bill Clinton went on? Yes, sir. We have watched that. Yeah. And uh it's been very beneficial to us. I feel better, and I'm just an old retiree, and we love your show. I watch it all the time. And Dave, you said you're cutting back on your medication for your type 2 diabetes. How's that working? It's working great. I was shocked. Even my doctor, when I got on the scales, I got off, and she went, well, wait a minute, you got to get back on the scales. There's something going on. And mm -hmm. then older, and so she's actually asked the information about it. Wow. My experience, and I, you know, I, I think a fairly common experience, and this is why all the starlets who want to, well, and stars too, for that matter, in Hollywood who want to lose weight, they go on vegan diets, you know, sometimes for six months or something just to balance their weight. But were you trying to reduce the amount of food that you were eating? Or did, my experience is that on a vegan diet, I'm eating a whole lot more fiber. So it fills me up but there's not as many calories, and so, you know, it kind of stabilizes my weight. But I'm curious how that happened for you, Dave. Well, I actually, I just, and and cut out all dairy. Uh, I tried to do that. Yeah, that's the real killer. Oh, it's, uh, 
And I just can't tell you how much better I feel. Yeah. We haven't looked back since we've done this. And actually, people's asking, what's going on? Are you sick? And I say, well, no, I'm just, you know, when I tell them, they say, but don't you miss that? And I say, well, no, I don't smoke or drink. So I don't know what I'm missing if I don't have it. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, when I quit eating meat when I was 16, I was still craving it, and about a year later, I drove through a Burger King and got a Whopper and took a bite out of it, and I was driving down the street, took a bite out of this thing while I was driving and got a piece of gristle in my teeth, and all of a sudden it hit me, oh my God, I'm chewing on a dead cow's muscle, and I had to pull over to the side of the road and throw up, and that was the last time I've eaten meat, and I have completely lost any interest in it, and I think that that's a fairly common experience, Dave. Well, I, I certainly thank you for your program, sir, and I appreciate all your insights. We thank really you. like it. Thank you, Dave, and, th and thanks for sharing your story with us. That's that's the kind of stuff when people sh t tell their stories that, that really moves the meter for other people. Dave, thanks so much, and thanks for watching us down there in Port Charlotte, Florida. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. <clears throat> no, I was just uh, really glad to uh, hear you touting the benefits of vegetarianism and veganism. And I've been a vegetarian since the mid-90s. And I took a environmental ethics class in college and just kind of learned about mass meat production and the overuse of antibiotics and all the bad stuff, you know, that goes along with factory farming. Yeah. And um, I wanted to second your point that I've had no problems at all going into any restaurant telling them, you know, I don't eat meat. Chefs are more than happy to accommodate, you know, anybody that has those dietary restrictions, even yeah. if it's not on the menu. I've gone into sushi restaurants and gotten seaweed and avocado rolls and just absolutely delicious, delicious food. It's not as difficult as people might think. My wife eats meat and she loves making separate dishes and all that. It's just like loves cooking vegetarian yeah. in that. But I just want to say, it's not hard to give up meat. In fact, yeah. I One more incentive that. you may want to share with your wife. This is from the BBC, 3 October 2018, by Alex Therian. The headline basically says the whole thing. Processed meat linked to breast cancer. View of studies found women who ate high levels of processed meat had a 9% increased risk of breast cancer compared to those who ate very little of it. Marty, thanks for the call. And thanks for sharing your story with us. Hey, let's talk about sleep. You know, there's some new studies out of Harvard and Johns Hopkins, really serious, solid stuff that show that chronic sleep deprivation can lead to depression, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Fancy word for, you know, like heart disease and things like that. Most of us need eight hours sleep. I mean, there is a spectrum, you know, from seven to nine, but the, the, the vast average is around eight hours sleep. And I've always been a light sleeper. My mom used to make jokes that I almost flunked out of kindergarten because I couldn't take a nap. And I'm really excited about this new product, the Pod by 8 Sleep. This is fascinating. One of sleep's biggest problems is temperature. It's tough to get a good night's sleep if you're too hot or too cold. And, and I'll tell you, Louise and I have very different preferences when it comes to this, you know, to the temperature of the bed. And that's why I want to tell you about the Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod by 8 Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. It was developed by leading sleep researchers after tracking 43 million hours of sleep. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and it adjusts the temperature of the bed automatically. That means if you like your bed cool, and your partner likes your bed warm, now you can have both at the same time in a crazy comfortable bed. Sleep longer and sleep deeper so you wake up refreshed and ready to take on the world. And to celebrate Independence Day, get a free gravity cooling blanket plus free shipping with your pod purchase, a $300 value, free. The offer ends Monday, July 8th. Visit 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P, 8sleep.com slash Tom, E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Amir in Chicago. Hey, Amir, it says you want to disagree with me about veganism. What's that about? I respect you in many ways. You are brave. However, but... however, we were not meant to be vegans or vegetarians. Right? We were born carnivores, right? Mother's milk 
is an animal product, right? Mother's B12. milk is really, really low in protein, number one. And number two, if you want to see a carnivore, look at the mouth of your cat. If you want to see an omnivore, look at the mouth of your dog. If you want to see a vegetarian, look at the mouth of a horse or a cow. Now, whose right. teeth do ours most resemble? Well, omnivores. However, we evolved to be vegans. In fact, if I was on a deserted island with a vegan, right, the vegan would end up becoming food at some point in time. Okay. The best sources of meat. So you're really committed to eating meat. Uh, you know, well, there's a reason you. why we don't eat Wait. predators, Amir. And, and, you know, we don't eat cats. We don't eat tigers. We don't eat animals that eat other animals. And it's because their meat is so poisonous. If you look at Aboriginal and Indigenous societies around the world, on average, the amount of uh, animal product that they consume is between 12 and 17 percent. That's just, you know, that's been normal for a long, long time. So, yeah, uh, you know, humans evolved eating a small amount of our diet as as animal products, and that may well be optimal health. I'm not saying it absolutely isn't. What I am saying is that particularly the older we get, that if you want a low inflammation diet, if you don't want to have that artery disease, the two things the two things you avoid you are sugar and meat. No, you eat more cholesterol. People that have reduced cholesterol live less. Does well, that, no, right there's outcome? a huge debate around that, Amir, as, as I'm sure you know. I mean, there, there, there's one body that is saying that cholesterol is the consequence of inflammation. It's the body trying to deal with inflammation. And there's another, another group saying, no, cholesterol is the no, cause of it, inflammation. 70% of our body is cholesterol. Meat and fasting. Mm, no, it's not. Right? The, problem is, the problem is we don't fast. Right? When we fast, we cause autophagy. Autophagy is cell recycling. Um, right. You know, I've been on, I've been a carnivore for a couple of years. I run a superfoods business, right? Contrary to which, you know, so I, I, I make a living out of selling plants. Contrary to what you believe, plants do not want to be eaten. I'm not suggesting we that we should go to an all grass diet. Uh, you know, high energy foods. If you were going yeah. out to hunt, Tom, you wouldn't want to eat a bowl full of greens. You know, to be on a, on a four. Or five Actually, hunt. I would. I got to tell you, Amir. You know, eating no animal products at all, and having been a vegetarian for, geez, 50, 52 of my sixty-eight years, I feel great. And most of the people I know, when they become vegetarian, and particularly when they become vegan, they drop a little weight, and they feel lighter, and they feel healthier. And like I said, I'm not saying that this is the one way to live. What I'm saying is, if you're concerned about the environment, the number one thing that you can individually do to reduce your carbon footprint is to stop eating animal products or eat fewer animal products, eat less of that stuff. And if you're concerned about your health, Boy, there's just no shortage of studies on this, from the stuff that Andrew Pritikin was doing back in the 70s and 80s, to the Cleveland Clinic, the diet that Bill Clinton is on, Henry Kissinger is on. I mean, you know, it just, it just continues. Uh, personally, I have ethical and religious as well as health and carbon concerns that inform my dietary choices, but I'm not trying to inflict uh, anything other than the carbon part of that on anybody else. And that's why I'm saying, and the main message that I hope I'm conveying is, if you want to lighten your carbon footprint, you know, uh, unless you drive an insane amount, driving less, turning your thermostat down, those are all good things, but the biggest impact you'll have is in the way you eat. And that's true right across the board. So anyhow, Donna in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Hey, Donna, what's up? I'll tell you, you saved me a ton of money when I was listening to you in 07 because I got my money out of the stock market. <laughs> so oh, good. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. I quit eating beef and pork when I was 19, and I'm 65 now. And I think it's kept me healthier than your average American. But I had some disappointing news um, over the weekend. When I go out for Mexican food, I'll have beans and rice. Mm -hmm. Oh, did the beans well, have lard in them? They did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so next time, it's whole beans. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, learn these things. Louise and I, when we were in, we took a week's vacation with my brother and his family down to Mexico a couple of months ago. 
And that was the week, it was in March, that was the week that we decided, okay, we're going to go full on vegan. We're just going to get, you know, and at that point we were down to like maybe a little feta cheese on a salad once or twice a week. I mean, that's how little animal products we were consuming. And Louise would cook with butter. And we just said, okay, that's it. We're going to go full out vegan. And we were eating next door in this little Mexican restaurant three days in a row. And finally, our son, who has been a vegan for decades, says, uh, did you ask if they use lard in the beans? I went back and asked, oh, jeez. But yeah, yeah, I'm with you. But uh, you can do it. Oh, yeah, and uh, depending on where you live. I mean, here in Portland, there's there's got to be 40 vegan restaurants. And with things on the menu like, you know, fried chicken, cod, and rump roast. And I mean, I've, I've literally seen these things on the menu. And they're all made out of soy products or, or seitan, you know, out of wheat and things like that. They're all vegetarian. So there's great ways to segue into it as well. Donna, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you uh, live from Los Angeles at KPFK's studios. And in the studio with me is George DiCaprio, the executive producer of this new movie, Ice on Fire. I'm in the movie and played a role in making it happen. And George, of course, the big cheese in making it happen. And uh, George, you wanted to talk about environmentalism and Ice on Fire? That's right, that's right. It's a monumental and all-engulfing intergalactic problem that's facing us. And for the most part, people are distracted by much smaller issues. We have to really understand that this is the big battle at the end of time, just like they talk about in science fiction. This is the last one that will take away everything if we're not careful. I'm reminded of something that I ran across in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Vedic legend that's 5,000 years old. And it is on the eve of a great battle, and Krishna himself is overlooking the battlefield. And his general, Darjuna, asks Krishna, about the outcome of the battle tomorrow. And Krishna admonishes Darjuna. He says, it's not for the soldier to think of the end of the battle. It's only for him to think that his heel is not set back one inch in the struggle. And that's the way we all have to be because this is really the end game. I can't tell you what an impact it had on everyone to see giant glaciers melt away, add to the sea level rise, and people are seriously talking about, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was no ice on the North Pole? It'll just be a catastrophe, and we're all watching it happen in slow motion. The movie is somewhat hopeful, but it does take time to demonstrate the very serious, serious nature, the the world-encompassing nature of what's happening to us. And I, I look at the baffling politics of the day, and I realize, is this done on purpose to confuse us? I don't understand. I, I feel like an elephant in a snowdrift. I'm bewildered. And maybe that's the plan. Maybe that's what's happening. Hmm. I can only say that people who look at the environment, you have to really understand that it's a different, all-encompassing thing that transcends religion and it transcends time. And we have to make a special place in our hearts for the care of the environment, for the understanding of the environment. It's almost like we have to keep a little votive candle deep inside us and things like religion and uh, positions in life are all important to us, but the big issue is we have to nurture this love that's within us. We have to find it and meditate on it and make it a focus of intentional meditation because that has to happen for us to be able to even to adjust to what's coming at us. That's the way I feel about it. What do you think Mm. is coming at us? Even more and more 
baffling waves of confusion and, I guess, um, tumult. I feel that this is all the vibration of the times and we have to be able to ride it out and and find the strength within ourselves to do that. And uh, it's hard to really say why this is happening and why it seems to be someone's intentional purpose to keep everything off balance the way it is. Well, there's a bunch of people making billions of dollars on fossil fuels. And, and you've got a, a media industry that's kind of interconnected with that and with the banking industries and whatnot. I mean, is this just like capitalism run amok destroying the planet? Well, that is true. And I could even look beyond that. I could look beyond that in the spiritual realm. So it's a spiritual uh, sickness, basically. Yeah, it is something that we have to approach. And I think it really can only be approached by meditation and intentional understanding of how big all this is we're just too small to understand how big this is and we have to make it our business to try to cope with it and pull through us as uh, human beings and if we don't if we continue burning fossil fuels at the rate we are we're looking at major disasters over the short term disasters that disrupt civilizations we're already seeing that in the horn of africa and in Central America. It's those tipping points, and they're just coming at us a million miles an hour, and I'm hoping that the movie will give people a little bit of hope for solutions. The movie is Ice on Fire, and you can watch it. Just go to hbo.com and you know click on the free movies. George DiCaprio. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, now that uh, Louise and I are pushing our late 60s here, uh, under eye puffiness and bags under the eyes and all that kind of stuff is kind of something you start noticing, right? And uh, for a couple of years, I people, you know, people have recommended everything from hemorrhoid cream to tea bags, but <laughs> frankly, none of them work. Uh, what really works well, and what Louise absolutely loves this stuff, is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet or wrinkles or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TriPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm, it really works. Three inches. And welcome back. I'm live from KPFK Studios in Los Angeles, and sitting here in the studio with me is George DiCaprio. He's the executive producer of the new movie Ice on Fire that I played a role in. I'm in it. George made it happen, helped make it happen. A big effort by a small bunch of us. And George, welcome back, first of all. Thank you. And thanks for being with us. Let's talk about Ice on Fire for a minute. I know you had, there were a couple of areas you wanted to get into specifically with regard to this. Well, one of the really specific parts of Ice on Fire is a progression of scientific antidotes to what's happening with our environment. Now, the big scheme, I suppose, in all of this is got to do with the drawdown. And the drawdown is a list of a hundred things that should all be happening simultaneously if we even have a prayer of affecting the amount of CO2 in the environment. Mm -hmm. And well, we covered maybe the first 10. And among those, some of the apparent cures, if you want to call it that, to the surplus of CO2 in the environment are really fascinating. One of them is biomimicry. Biomimicry is a principle wherein science looks at how nature itself approaches a problem 
and finds out how to get around it or fix it or make it better. And in the film, they demonstrate an incredible new technique, which is called direct air capture. And it seizes CO2 literally out of the air and by a mystical process converts it finally into stone and the CO2 stays in the stone for, I suppose, geological epochs. It's sequestered there. It'll never come out. And, of course, this is exactly what we want to happen on a big scale. And it might be costly, but as the picture points out, it'll be less costly if we're near a source of power that is nearly, it's very inexpensive, Geothermal is the answer. So if we can get enough geothermal going, and theoretically we can do that, we can use that energy to convert CO2 into stone, which is a naturally occurring process that happens in nature. Only it takes millions of years for it to happen. It also happens in the ocean. And in the ocean, that process is called marine snow. Yeah. Another fascinating natural process that I knew very little about until about a year ago. What happens is at the top of the ocean surface, maybe the top half inch of the entire ocean surface, the cyanobacteria are able to capture CO2 and kind of convert it into a kind of a matrix. It's a little support system it's like a web and the bacteria continue this substrate and build it out until it's kind of a mat and it occurs under certain circumstances then the mat slowly sinks to the bottom of the ocean into the abyss and becomes stone after a while it never surfaces anymore and that's where we get concrete from yeah digging up (laughs) digging up that stone and you know that's calcium carbonate yeah And what happens is that it may be possible to find a particular catalyst for this process that is not toxic. And people are experimenting with different substances, uh, especially in a particular Croatian professor named Professor Pushkarik, who is in our movie, and he has... He has a wonderful scene by the ocean where he's explaining this process, and then he shows us these marine, this marine snow, these mats of material that are slowly sinking, and it's, uh, you could believe you're in outer space. You've probably never seen these things. The movie is full of new inventive things that you haven't come across, and just from the viewpoint of a scientific geek i think a lot of people would enjoy it just to find out what's out there it's like a big shopping list of things that we could do that you would never have seen anywhere but in the movie yeah that's a a lot of the feedback i get is to that effect and people can watch it at hbo.com go to the free movies and it's free you don't have to be an hbo subscriber where do we go from here with all this all that we've learned george We're facing literally a planet-wide apocalypse. I mean, the insect apocalypse is happening because of climate change and human species destruction. Mammals, I mean, you know, 90-some percent of mammals on Earth now are humans or human feedstock. And we address these issues with ice on fire to some extent. Oh, you did a good job. I think that at the screening, which was at LACMA about two weeks back, when you mentioned that the people who are deliberately going about and setting about deceiving people about what's happening with our environment and how human activity is causing the excess CO2, and you said those people who are deliberately doing this should be tried at the Hague, everyone jumped up and screamed. (laughs) I thought it was going to be a lynch mob there for a second. (laughs) (laughs) It was a moment. Yeah, it was a moment. A few, you should be proud. You should be proud. It's a great idea. I think probably we could get a petition going. I think this is a crime against humanity, frankly, to, to, uh, to profit off the destruction of the biosphere and then pay people to lie for you about it. It seems to me that that's a crime against humanity. Oh, it, it's despicable. It's like our country is being run by 
a thousand Tony Sopranos or something. It's just mm. <laughs> yeah. it's an organized uh, gang that's doing it. I don't know. I'm just like I said. I'm just bewildered, and I feel I'm not alone. Uh, this idea of being confused to the point where. It's like a double head fake. You look this way, and you look that way, and then you snap your head back, and what just happened? You just you can barely cope with it, especially today's news, mm. which really fits the bill. Well, I think you know, at a, at a certain level, we have to we have to stabilize ourselves as much as we have to stabilize the world. You know, I mean, how do you how do you deal yeah. with that? How do you reckon with that? That is true. There's only so much we can ask the governments to do. And I know full well that the problem is so immense that, in a way, governments have to handle it. But it's got to start still from that individual feeling of the worth of nature and the worth of the natural world. And it's got to be very close to your heart. It has to be your deepest devotion in life. That's the only way I can explain it. And to be devoted like that is almost a hermetic secret. It's almost something that you keep with your soul. It's a bargain you make with yourself, but it's got to be there and it has to affect, infect and affect millions of people. And maybe it will be like that. Maybe it won't be a big bonfire It'll just be a billion glowing coals of love and concern for the earth. It's got to come about some way. I wish I had the magic button, believe me, yeah. but I don't. I can only insist on myself thinking this way. Yeah. And I feel you do, too. I feel you do. I do. Yeah. And, and you know, we have to do our, our internal personal work uh, as well as the external work. Go see Ice on Fire, HBO. Oh, yeah. I, I can't say that enough. It's a wonderful movie. It's one revelation after the next about possibility and how we could turn this around. I hope so many people see it and try to believe in it and try to reach for it. It really is the only way to go. Yeah, amen. And your son, Leonardo, did such a brilliant job with the uh, narration. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really great. George DiCaprio, continue our conversation. We've got a lot of things to talk about. Let's talk about this thing about where do rights come from? That is an intriguing question. And I would like to step into the conversation from an odd angle. I just finished a really wonderful brand new book called The End of Ice by Dar Jamal. Mm -hmm. And at the, at the end of the book, he makes this separation about rights and uh, the nature of rights. And he says basically that European civilizations and things that we consider advanced civilizations always stress rights and list their rights as inalienable. But in among indigenous peoples, they oppose that with the idea of obligation. There's mm. a right and there's a matching obligation. And you see this in the structure of the Iroquois governmental system. You see it elsewhere. And it's, it's such an intriguing idea that a lot of the environmental you know, uh, destruction that's going on is really a question of what people consider to be their rights. Mm -hmm. And I can see where oil companies might say, well, it's my right to pump all the oil out of the ground. I lease that land. I got to get my profit back and so forth and so on. And that's my right. But what about the obligation part of it? What about the, the part of uh, being a steward to the earth and taking care of uh, the world as it exists? It, the balance is, is right there, and you can see the separation in the two mindsets. Hmm. So uh, it was a wonderful book. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Dara is a brilliant writer. His book on Iraq is just so troubling. 
But Aboriginal societies, indigenous societies, if you look at the history of some of these societies, and probably one of the best histories is the Maori people in New Zealand, and the difference between the, and I wrote about this in my book Threshold, Threshold. The, the difference between the Maori people and the people in New Caledonia, who both discovered islands, both wiped out the local population of moa birds over the course of you know a couple of hundred years, both descended into violence and cannibalism and, and just you know horrors. When Captain Cook arrived in New Zealand, they were still in that place. And so they killed and ate two of his crew members. But then he sailed on to New Caledonia, which had similarly stripped their environment. But they had adopted this in response to it, rather than going for war. Well, they went through a period of that. But after that period of war, their response was, let's figure out a way, a sustainable way to live. And Captain Cook in his diary said, surely this is the most paradisical, this is paradise. You know, he, he didn't even imagine that humans could live like that. And you see the evidence, the Clovis people evidence in North America that 20,000 years ago, there was this mass extinction. We wiped out mammoths and we wiped out the three-toed sloth and all kinds of easily eaten stuff. And I've always thought that probably the Native American sense of obligation came out of themselves creating an environmental wasteland or at least diminishing their food supply to the point that it was freak out. And out of that came this learning. And, that my, and my hope is we'll, we'll come to that learning too. What do you think about all that, George? It's curious because I read your book. And beside all the things that you mentioned is a story about the introduction of the yam in the island, and it's possible that the yam itself, as a food source, has uh, phytoestrogens inside that You're may right. have, that, that may have tempered fighting you know, divisive male spirit. So later on, when people visited the island, they found people much more, much more peaceful, much more quiet. There was no cannibalism, and they were devoted to raising the plantain, which is very easy to raise. Yeah. And, of course, being a vegetarian myself and yourself, too, this yeah. is a, a story that's close to our hearts. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, I, I remember back years ago uh, studying herbology and all that stuff, the, the, you know, about because uh, some of the some of the plants in the yam family, some parts of those plants are used as medicine for for uh, menstrual periods and things like That's that. That's correct. Because because they alter estrogen levels in, the, in both men and women. Yeah. And huh. So that's like our way of dealing with toxic uh, testosterone. Well, that's a fascinating story and a, and a very fascinating book, Tom. It's one of you're really one of your best. And um, thank you. I also want to skip ahead now and talk a little bit about Ice on Fire and how it all happened. And um, it actually started, I think you were in the room about more than three years ago, more than that. Mm -hmm. And we were so lucky to uh, have a good group of people. And we went to one place and another and asked. My son Leo came with us, and that was the moment it all came together. So now HBO has uh, has it on, and I believe the phrase is in front of the paywall, which mm. means it's free. Just go to HBO.com, and you can watch it. And, of course, it's much nicer to see it on a big screen, but either way, the motion graphics are so wonderful. I've had numerous people tell me that, it makes the idea so clear and so available to your mind that uh, it's like an, an education that's much, much needed. The, the situation with the methane in the Siberian Ocean Basin is um, a really newly emerging problem. It, it was around in the background for a long time in ways that we didn't recognize. But now it seems that it's coming on us with a fury, and there is methane leaking out all over everywhere. And the science behind this, in the movies, explained in steps, in easily taken small steps, and it's so approachable, at the end you can't fight the argument. It's, the science is too good. What's the old saying? We live in interesting times. We have seen the fossil fuel debate or the, the carbon in the atmosphere debate be hijacked by the fossil fuel industry. We've seen the gun debate be hijacked by the gun industry. 
It's like industry after industry using corporate personhood to just twist the world. To say nothing of the asbestos industry, one of our big favorites. Right? Oh, yeah, the one that killed my father, actually. We're hitting a break here, George. Okay. I'm sorry. But, uh, George DiCaprio, the movie is Ice on Fire. You can watch it at HBO.com, free on HBO.com. You don't have to be a subscriber. Just check out the movies. George, thank you. A privilege. Thank, thank you very you. much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar. And look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Colleen in Manorville, New York. Hey, Colleen, what's on your mind today? You know, when you're talking about this Ice on Fire movie and all of the impaction on the climate, there's a lot of money tied up in keeping power where it is. The reality is that billionaires are used to buying whatever they want. And they're thinking business is just going to be going along as usual. And I've heard people on different shows, including yours, that say 20, 30 years from now, we're going to be at a point where we cannot reverse this. And all the money in the world will not change this. And Try I 10 years that there have to, Yeah, 10 years. Okay, yes. And you're right. It's, it's closer to that. And it depends on who you talk to. But, you know, science being denied by the Republican people in the White House in particular, if you can't get them to understand that all of this wealth is not going to protect them, all of this wealth is not going to bring things back to where they can continue to acquire wealth, they have to be made aware of this. And I don't know how to do that. I think many of them are aware of it. I think there's a grab what you can get and, and run mentality. It's kind of a smash and grab, you know, like the people who rob jewelry stores. Um, that's how I think of these fossil fuel billionaires that, that, uh, and, and, and multimillionaires. And I think, frankly, in the defense industry as well. They're just getting what they can get while they can get it. Colleen, thank you for your comments. Tom Harmon here with you. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Alan Ratner's new book on the line with us is the uh, New York-based reporter for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas. Uh, The uh, chief foreign correspondent is his official title. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. I noticed that a a new report finds that building seawalls to protect American cities in the face of climate uh, change-driven Uh, sea level rise is going to be insanely expensive. How do you think the United States should figure out which cities to save and which cities to just abandon? If sea level rise just over the next 50 years goes the way that it's projected, you're not just going to lose Miami. You're going to lose so much of Florida that Miami's going to become an island or, you know, what's what little might be left of it. Which cities do we save? How do we know? I think the answer, unfortunately, is going to manifest that precise concern that many people have around social justice when it comes to climate change, which is that it's poor areas that will the decision will be made not to save. And in looking at the sticker price of doing the kind of climate change adaptation just with respect to seawalls, looking at the cost here, a lot of cities are not going to be saved. This study out today from the Center for Climate Integrity says the price tag for the next 20 years alone in dealing with rising sea levels in the U.S. will be $416 billion, with Florida 
coming in at $76 billion alone. Now, I don't have the Florida budget in front of me, but that's a, a huge line item for even a very, very well-heeled state, uh, let alone ones where they're focused on balanced budget amendments <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, and I will add two big caveats. The first is that this price tag, $416 billion for seawalls in the U.S. in the next 20 years, assumes two things which are far from assumptions, in my view. The first is a middle projection for the emissions drawdowns called R. CP 4.5 in the climate community. It's sort of a uh, semi-rosy view of uh, humanity's ability to get emissions under control, but uh, again, hardly a given. Uh, And the other one is that this is only to pay for seawalls to address what would be basically flood levels uh, expected in that year, not the sort of one in a hundred floods or your one in 200 year floods, uh, sort of the bare minimum that a city would do. And in many cases, as we're seeing in Staten Island, that's just not acceptable. Staten Island is spending over $600 million right now to build a one in 300 year flood wall. But guess how long it is? It's five miles. I mean, <laughs> think about the uh, the distances and, and the cost this is going to actually incur when you really do it on a mass scale. It's pretty scary. Um, and again, it's just one of many many expensive elements of climate change adaptation. You don't just do seawalls and then not do the rest. It's crop damage. It is relocating infrastructure. It's building new infrastructure. So this price tag should give a lot of people pause. And unfortunately, even if you're trying to be proactive about this, um, it seems like you're going to have to bear this cost anyway. So we're looking at certainly trillions of dollars, perhaps even tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars if we were to expand this uh, all across the United States or even around the world. Is there any discussion about recovering that money from the fossil fuel billionaires and the industries that produce the problem to start with? No, but if that's what you think to fix it, I think we're we're seeing a a movement in the the U.S. where you can find the right people to bug and to carry that message forward. You're definitely hearing that more and more, but this is... It seems like Staten Island should be suing ExxonMobil and saying, you know, know, among others, and saying, you know, okay, you guys poisoned the air, and now we're having to deal with it. Pay up. Yeah, I was at an announcement by the city of New York, right, I think, about a year and a half ago, where they were announcing sort of a suit against the fossil fuel companies for various types of climate-related damages. And I believe it was tossed out in court relatively quickly, but I'm, you know, I would, wouldn't be surprised if there aren't other angles that folks are looking to pursue. Yeah. And very quickly, the International Labor yep. Organization just adopted a global convention on violence and harassment in the workplace. How important is it? It's the first time, yeah, it's the first time there's ever been a definition set for what this harassment is. It's the first time that international legal protections are addressing people who are non-regular employees, so volunteers, interns, people who are being trained for jobs are going to gain domestic violence or sort of harassment and violent protection uh, legal measures here. It's a great treaty. It's sort of the global Me Too movement um, getting a big win at the international level. It just needs two countries to be ratified. I doubt the U.S. will be one of them if we can't even pass the ERA, but uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll eventually ratify this before too long. It's a great treaty and everyone should look it up. Amen. The ERA being the Equal Rights Amendment, which has been yep. stalled by uh, largely Republicans forever. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I wanted to chime in about this week's topic on veganism, I guess, as one caller put it. Veganism. As otherwise known as veganism. The right wing has picked this up as, oh, look, they're going to tell you what to eat, and now it's been thrown on the trash heap of the Green New Deal. This is what the Green New Deal is all about. They're telling you what to eat now. Actually, Paul, their criticism of the Green New Deal with regard to hamburgers, because the statement that's being made is the Green New Deal tells you you can't eat hamburgers anymore, has nothing to do with veganism. It has to do with the fact that the fourth leading cause of climate change gases um, in terms of their potency, methane is you know 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide, is industrial-grade animal agriculture. And uh, while the Green New Deal doesn't specifically address that, it does say we need to address the major sources of carbon pollution in our atmosphere. So the Republicans or whoever's messaging for them, you know, the the, the think tanks that the billionaires hire, did that extrapolation. Now, Tom, people are not as nuanced thinkers as perhaps you and I are. They hear things in one fell swoop. And the other thing is, I would ask this. Okay. Well, how does this translate to public policy? And I'll suggest things. Okay, how about this? 
We stop federal subsidies for the dairy industry. Milk goes up to, you know, six, seven, eight dollars a gallon. That will cut down consumption for sure. And then switch those subsidies to the green energy industry. Is yeah, that something I'm that all in favor of support? It. Yeah, I think I think, you know, and, 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 and we don't, by the way, we don't just subsidize the dairy industry. We also subsidize cattle with public lands. Yeah. In fact, the Koch right. brothers own a, own a ranch where they're they're grazing cattle on public lands. You're in my land and they're making a profit off them. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways that we subsidize the meat industry, not to mention right. the USDA's food suggestions. Well, the thing is, is that uh, there are some food subsidies that I do support. I do, sub- I do support su- subsidizing the dairy industry. Otherwise, there won't be one. And that has been the case um, back since the 1930s. Uh, Nebia versus New York, 1932. The Supreme Court ruled that the state of New York had a right to put a floor, not a cap, a floor on the sale of milk at nine cents a quart. So the, the state of New York was essentially saying you can't sell milk for less than that, otherwise you'll drive the dairy industry out of business. And so, right. you know, for those but, of us but why, Paul? Why, why, why do we need to be drinking the breast secretion of a two thousand pound mammal? Uh, because they produce a lot of it. Number one. And secondly, I would ask this, if it's so bad, well, what is the physiological difference between the calf that's supposed to drink that and the woman? The calf is designed in its first two years of life to grow to 1,000 pounds or 2,000 pounds or whatever a full-grown you know, cattle is. The human right. baby in its first two years of life is designed to basically double in size. And human, human beings, mother's milk, breast milk, human breast milk, is much, much higher in potassium and much, much lower in calcium because human brains are developing like crazy in those first two years, whereas cow's milk is lower in potassium and much higher in calcium because cows are developing massive amounts of bone structure during those first two years, and they're brains are already pretty much as far developed as they're going to be developed. Yeah, there's some difference, but human children are developing up uh, bone structure up to the, uh, their teen years. No, there's plenty of calcium in vegetables, and they're not developing at the same speed as cows do. And that's, well, and now, and I just, now what I, you're I don't see any reason for a dairy like industry. A, you sound like a religion, Tom. You're starting to argue you know, it like a religion. Uh, I am talking science here, Paul. This is not religion. I'm not telling you what I believe. I'm telling you what you can look up. Now, you, know, the, you, you could argue that, you know, oh, yeah, well, you don't say that because the Republicans will twist it and get all outraged. Screw the Republicans. That's what Alexandria Ocasio is saying. You know, the Republicans are all hysterical because she's using the phrase concentration camp to describe the concentration camps. Screw the Republicans. We, you know, we need to say what's true. And what's true is that right. mother's milk is better for human babies than cow's milk and that concentration camps in the United States should not exist. I'm sorry, but you brought, once you start comparing those two, you lost the argument. Thanks for your time, Tom. Good, good day. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Lena in New York City watching on WBAI. Hey, Lena, what's up? Thank you. Um, I wanted to thank you for uh, your conversation with Paul just then and, and how well-spoken you were on the subject of uh, animals in the dairy industry. And just to mention that uh, the way we treat animals extends to how we treat people. You know, it's one of the greatest signifiers of whether or not someone will be violent towards people is whether they are abusive towards animals. It extends in the society, the systematization of our violence towards animals and how we treat people in the war and in the meat and dairy industries, one of the worst for people. And if we can't extend our mercy uh, to the most defenseless and innocent uh, beings on the planet, how can we expect to extend that mercy against human beings who we probably have much more of a, an actual grievance with? It, it really does connect. And so to separate the two is a mistake. Thank you. I agree with your perspective, and, and uh, you said it very well. Thank you, Lena. Jay in Dillon, South Carolina. Hey, Jay, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I've been a vegetarian since 72. I'm 61. i got to tell you, it's gotten so much easier. In the mm. early days, it was difficult, but especially in the bigger cities like Portland, where I've been, where you're from, and New York, where I'm originally from. It's so much easier now. And even in foreign countries when I travel, you've traveled, I know, because so many European people have become vegetarian or vegan. Mm-hmm. So even in more rural, backwards areas, and I live in rural Carolina now, and they get it. It's much and people are doing it for health, Jay. I mean, all over the world, they're figuring out that this is a healthier way to live. And you're right. it's straightforward stuff. 
Absolutely. It's so much better. So kudos to you. You know, I agree with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's straightforward stuff. And again, I'm not asking anybody to join a religion. (laughs) There's not a doctrine here. There's not a catechism. It's, you know, just the, the less meat and animal products, you know, eggs and cheese and stuff, the fewer that we eat, the healthier we get. I mean, it just kind of boils down to that. And the less intense the carbon footprint that we inflict on the planet is. Grant in Bothell, Washington. Grant, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to say my concern with meat eaters and with plant eaters is that the plant eaters have us beat by far in the diversity of their diet and that we need to diversify what we eat and eliminating a lot of the three main meats would open up land for the growing of a diverse plant kingdom to eat. Yeah, and all these different plants have different micronutrients, and the more you eat, the broader a spectrum of foods you eat, the more micronutrients you're getting, and the more actual nutrients you're getting. Whereas if you're eating meat, well, you're getting antibiotics, and you're getting hormones, and you're getting all the poison in that animal. And and if they knew that they were going to die, and given modern factory farming methods, they did. These, at least the red meat animals, are mammals just like we are, and they have the exact same hormone system and limbic brain, so they freak out knowing they're going to die. It floods their bloodstream with adrenaline and adrenochrome and all these fear-based cortisol, fear-based and anxiety-based hormones. And uh, those things don't go away. We eat them, and then we wonder why we feel anxious. Grant, thanks for the call. Peter in Sandy, Oregon. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hi, I'm so glad you're talking about veganism. I wish you'd talk about it more. The way I see it, there's three broad categories of reasons to be vegan. You know, there's the compassion angle, you know, Buddha, Gandhi, PETA, and those good folks invaded that chicken slaughter factory in Northern California recently and shut it down. Right. You know, that's the compassion angle. And uh, the uh, environmental angle, I mean, we all know about the ozone layer, but I mean, think of what happened in the Carolinas. The hurricanes came in, overflowed hundreds of pig poop ponds that destroyed hundreds of miles of waterways all through the Carolinas. Yeah. The health and longevity uh, angle is the third major category. I mean, personally, I wandered into a microbiotic commune in Haight-Ashbury in late 1967. Mm-hmm. And I stopped eating meat then when I was 20. Most of the time, I've been vegan. But my weight is the same since I was 20. I never get up in the middle of the night, which is, you know, the beginning of needing Viagra and all that. Mm -hmm. And I've never been to a doctor. I've never taken any prescription medicine, you know, except for sports injuries. I've been to a doctor. Life is good. I've incredibly healthy. I've had a number (laughs) of friends who I put on a basic vegan diet out of 300 pounders. And he ate as much as he wanted to eat, you know, all the time, except no animals, no white flour, no white sugar, no alcohol. And he lost five, six pounds a month and came down to 220, his proper weight, eventually. I mean, it's, it's one issue that affects so much. Yeah. Everything, you know, personal health, the environment, your compassion karma for future lives. I mean, it affects everything. Yeah, I'm with you. And also a vegan diet is much higher in fiber than pretty much any other diet. And it turns out that the good bacteria in our gut needs fiber. They actually can digest fiber, whereas we can't. And so fiber isn't just like a bulk that your intestines use for muscular action, you know, to to move stuff through. It's actually food for the bacteria that is part of the microbiome that literally regulates our emotions. And so, I mean, there's all these different ways that diet affects how we feel. Peter, thank you. That's a great story. Carolyn in Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Carolyn, what's up? The man who called a little bit ago and was trying to tell you that we are built to eat meat, and Mm -hmm. you were telling him about how our teeth differ with his comment. I wanted to add to that also that uh, animals who are natural carnivores, they have much shorter intestines than we do. Yes, and smaller um, stomachs, yes, and more acidic stomachs, yes. Right, right, and then when we eat meat, ours are much more long, ours are longer and more complicated, so when we eat meat, it just sits down there for a while and takes longer to go through and causes problems. Yeah, it putrefies and it causes colon cancer. Right, But also I wanted to mention that people who don't care, <clears throat> excuse me, people who don't care about animals or the environment, they should still care about all the hungry people in the world, you know, yes. and we can produce so much more food. And their own health. 
Right, right. But we could produce so much more food for all those people if we if we just stop eating animal products. Yes, more than half of all the vegetables grown in the United States, I don't remember the percentage, but it's, it's substantially more than half of all the vegetables grown in the United States are fed to animals. And I mean, that's crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, Carolyn, thanks a lot for the call. Joel in Cologne, South Dakota, it says you want to disagree with me. Joel, what's on your mind? Okay, yeah. Well, I enjoy your program. I listen to it pretty regularly, and I agree with you on most issues. But, but when it comes to the carbon sequestration mm-hmm. and stuff in our environment and stuff, animal agriculture is a definite benefit. Now, a good book for you to read would be From Dirt to Soil. It's wrote by Gabe Brown out of North Dakota. And I think that would benefit you in maybe understanding what animal agriculture does in our environment. No, I'm very familiar uh, with the with the, the whole urea cycle and and you know um, how an, you know the symbiosis between animals and plants. The problem, Joel, is that's true if you're talking about, you know, pastoralism. If we're going to follow a herd of goats across the country, that's true if you're eating an occasional bison or buffalo, but that's not true of a factory farm that's producing millions of cubic feet of liquid poop that is pouring hormones and antibiotics into the animals, which is where most of the meat that Americans eat comes from. Well, see, then you're looking at the fact that you need to get back to the individual family farm versus the I agree. factory corporate structure farm. I but agree. As you, go, as you go east here, and I'm in the center part of South Dakota, kind of we're half and half as you get further west. It's more animal agriculture with your livestock grazing. You get further east. Now, see, they get into these big farms, they tear out all the trees and all the shelter belts where you got your livestock, you still maintain your shelter belts. Matter of fact, we've planted probably 40 acres of trees here mm-hmm. just because of the animal agriculture and the livestock right. in the environment. Because too many of our environments don't allow us to produce vegetables and stuff. Our growing seasons are too short. And also, we don't have the water and the moisture, so then you'd have to dig into your aquifers in places that you actually have aquifers. Yeah, and this is, this is Joel, this is why pastoralism was the the first agricultural revolution. In the beginning, humans were hunter-gatherers and perhaps scavengers. And then we figured out that we could have food on the hoof if we brought, you know, the animals with us, goats and sheep and things like that. And we domesticated these animals. That was what Abel did for a living. And Cain was the first farmer. And God didn't like the farmers, but he wanted the pastoralist. Anyhow, Joel, thanks for the call. I'm, I'm sorry. We're out of time here. It's the end of the show. We'll continue these conversations and many others. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you and your friends. Tell your friends about our program. Tell your friends about however you're listening to this show. Spread the good word, wake people up. It's more important now than ever, particularly as we are sliding, literally sliding in a fascistic direction. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.